Hey, Weeds listeners, this is Sarah Cliff. Um, today, we are going to bring you something a little bit different. A few weeks ago, Matt Iglesias and Dara Lind and I were in New York at the Now Hear This Festival. It was a super cool event with 25 different podcasts, and we got to do a really awesome live show in front of the audience there. So today, we're bringing you that episode where we dig in and get a really weedsy look at the Canadian immigration system. We look at the politics of uncertainty, how Trump is using uncertainty as actually a policymaking device. And we have a white paper standoff where Matt, Dara, and I each brought our very favorite white papers. We let the audience vote to see which one they wanted to discuss. So give it a listen. Let us know what you think. And now we'll get to the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us at the Fracture Theater at Now Hear This 2017. Now, please welcome to the stage, Sarah Cliff, Dara Lynn, and Matthew Iglesias. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. Hey, team. How's it going? Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm at Matthew Iglesias. I, I learned from the uh, voice over there that I've been mispronouncing Dare's name for uh, many years now. Um, but don't know, don't care, don't notice. <laughs> uh, They've been mispronouncing my name, um, but that's okay. Uh, we we are the Weeds, um, and uh, we. I don't know. I, I hope most of you are, are familiar with your show, but uh, for those who aren't, uh, we uh, you know try to cover cover the news in a in a really boring. Uh, <laughs> non-newsy way. So, like, there's a devastating hurricane pummeling on the state of Florida. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, we instead have uh, a, a detailed look at the Canadian immigration system coming for you. Um, but we really do, because we have an immigration expert and a Canadian, and I took a class about Canada in yeah. college. So with our powers combined, we're really going to do this. We're going to be combined. We've got also, we're going to do a, a little uh, research paper competition later. We're going to let you vote on, on what we're going to talk about. Uh, but, you know, first, obviously the sort of most dramatic uh, new political news event we had last year, uh, last week, was we saw Donald Trump send Jeff Sessions out to announce that the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program was being canceled. We then saw Trump himself tweeting, indicating that, well, maybe he would revisit this decision we had talk Causing about... my head to explode several times <laughs> this week. Yeah, Dara, I think a round of applause for Dara for making it here and still being alive at the <laughs> end of this wonderful. week. <laughs> She's done a lot, a lot of great work. And then we had, then Trump the next day was like, oh, don't worry, guys. Like, nothing's happening to you for six months. It's fine. Uh, because Nancy Pelosi told him to tweet a thing. Right. Which is... If I were Nancy Pelosi, I, I would like to send a message to Nancy Pelosi and any other Democrat who's considering getting Donald Trump to tweet things. Maybe 140 characters is a very narrow range of error for this president to understand the nuances of federal policy. Please don't do that again. But so it was a confusing situation. And I think to someone who looks at it from afar, you may say, OK, well, this is confusing because somebody messed up. Somebody somebody made a mistake. Um, but I think if you if you look at Donald Trump's longer record, you look at things that he's written in his books, stuff he said about his approach to business, uh, you come to understand that ambiguity and sort of confusion and uncertainty are things that he 
believes in on the merits. Um, it's it's very likely that in any given case, some of this is driven by genuine confusion in the White House team or by people not having their ducks in a row. But there's something deliberate about that. He says that in business dealings, it's advantageous to be unpredictable and unclear, that it gives you a sort of advantage. He said on the campaign trail a number of times he faulted the American military for having been sort of too specific about what it was going to do and said that he wanted to be unpredictable as a leader. And I think Dara has written a lot about how beyond this sort of handling of of DACA last week, that creating an atmosphere of uncertainty has been sort of critical to his approach to immigration enforcement. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, despite what what the president tweeted, you know, inaccurately about the continue, the, you know, no changes to the DACA program over the next six months, his administration has in fact been putting steps in place to, you know, kind of sunset it over the next six months. Um, so it's no longer taking new applications, applications for renewals of protection from deportation and work permits are, you know, closing in a little under a month, uh, which is causing a lot of, you know, pro bono lawyers and community groups to kind of panic because they have a month to get together three months worth of applications. And the official government line on what people who currently are protected from deportation under DACA should be doing is that they're supposed to spend the next six months preparing to leave the country just in case Congress doesn't act and they're stripped of their protections. Of course, in practice, that's not going to happen uh, for most people. By definition, anyone with DACA has been in the U.S. for 10 years. Most of them entered, you know, when they were six years old or younger. I it's much more likely that they're just going to kind of go back into the shadows. But officially, they're supposed to be expecting that they might leave the country where they grew up if Congress doesn't act while waiting to see if Congress acts. It's a, you know, they're, the government doesn't particularly want them getting too comfortable. It wants them to feel that they that they're, the clock is running out on them. And that's actually very similar to what the government's been doing with people who get temporary protected status, which is something the government often extends to uh, people from countries where there's been a natural disaster. So after the Haiti earthquake in 2010, the government said, well, if you're Haitian and you're in the U.S. but you don't have documents, don't worry, we're not going to deport you. We'll, give, we'll allow you to get this temporary protection instead. The Trump administration has said now, well, the earthquake was a while ago. So for six months, we're going to continue to protect you. But in six months, you should be prepared to leave. So actually, Haitians are currently going through the kind of uncertainty that DACA recipients were put under this week. And in both of those cases, the theory is, if you make people feel that they're not certain of being able to stay in the U.S., they might actually leave. But in practice, what happens is you just have people who are not sure what they're whether they're going to be legal from one day to the next, who are living under a lot of stress and who end up being marginalized, not be- not just because of their impending like delegalization, but because it turns out that it's a massive cognitive cost to go through one day to the next, not knowing where you're going to be, what you're going to be in six months. So to be clear, I, I mean, what's, what's the, the point of this? I mean, why would you want to kind of scare a certain number of Haitians into leaving voluntarily rather than just yanking their papers and deporting them? So there's the theoretical policy answer, and then there's the culture war politics answer, right? The first one, the answer to the first is that 
there's this theory called attrition through enforcement, which Mitt Romney popularized when he called it self-deportation back in 2012, uh, which is that if you make life miserable enough for people in the U.S., they will leave instead of having to be deported because it's extremely expensive to deport, you know, 11 million unauthorized immigrants. And this but addresses much, the court's backlog. Yeah, it, it, it addresses the court's backlog. It, uh, the, the biggest problem with deporting someone logistically is that you have to go through immigration court, which takes two years because they're trying to put through so many people through immigration court without actually funding immigration court. Um, but, you know, there are all kinds of logistical, legal difficulties, emotional difficulties associated with deportation. And if you could just find a way to get pe- millions of people to leave on their own, all of those would be solved. So a lot of the kind of harsh enforcement policies that we've seen, everything from the state law Arizona passed in, in 2010 to, you know, moves to make it harder to hire unauthorized people are designed so that in theory you can reach this like critical misery level that will cause them to pick up and leave. And that hasn't been shown to be true in practice. No one has yet seen a, a like, oh, we've, we've hit critical misery. We're beginning to see people picking up and leaving for Mexico. Um, but that brings us to the culture war thing, which is if you're making people who you don't think should be in the United States feel bad and scared and be afraid to go out in public and be afraid to like take their kids to school and you know sign up for public benefits that they are eligible for which is very little um then you're still kind of winning you know you're still punishing the people you want to punish you're still making life better comparatively for people who feel threatened by immigrants in the U.S. So even though the kind of attrition part doesn't work, the misery part works to a certain extent. But I think that critical critical misery thing is actually like a really key insight to how the Trump administration is running a lot of its social policies right now. And it really, I mean, it hits vulnerable populations the most, I would say. I think someone who is more affluent, who has more means to to move, to buy things, to, you know, take care of themselves is going to weather uncertainty better than someone who has, has less resources to manage that. Um, you know, I cover healthcare here at Vox and talk about it a lot here on the weeds. And I see like the critical misery thing totally working in healthcare right now, where one of the stories I've been covering a lot lately is the defunding of the Obamacare outreach. So, we learned about a week ago that Trump was going to cut the outreach budget for Obamacare 40%. What they've done is just let the budget lapse entirely. And it's another one of these like governing by uncertainty right now where the last funding year ran out September 1st. And you know, I was talking to an Obamacare enrollment worker in West Virginia on Friday who was like, well, I'm being laid off at the end of the day if they don't send us our funding by the end of the day. And she was laid off at the end of the day because the funding hasn't gone out. So I think, you know, it, I think you're totally right. In immigration, a lot of people are not going to react the way they want to. But I think they've found in the healthcare space, there is still this real effort to undermine the Affordable Care Act. And it's the same tactics, you know, like Matt was talking about that Trump talks about using in business is just making the future of the Affordable Care Act look super uncertain. And fewer people are able to do outreach when the, you don't know when the funding's going to show up. Fewer people even bother to sign up if they... Um, if they don't know if this law is going to stick around. There was a kind of surprising survey that came out about a week ago from the Commonwealth Fund that they interviewed people who didn't buy insurance last year. And they said, well, why didn't you sign up? One third said, well, I thought Obamacare was going to be repealed. So uh, of the remaining uninsured, which is like 25 or even more, probably like 30 or so million at this point, a third of those are citing the lack of clarity around the healthcare law as a reason to not enroll in the benefit. So uncertainty can be 
a really powerful, you know, Trump couldn't repeal Obamacare through Congress, but he's doing a pretty good job making it a smaller, less well-functioning program by just not making clear whether it exists or making clear how to sign up for it or if there will even be any money to help people sign up for it. Like the, the wild thing about Obamacare to me is like usually businessmen not named Donald Trump don't really like uncertainty. Like it seems like insurers <laughs> right. aren't Insurers wild. complain about this all the time where they say we want rules, but it, exactly, the uncertainty kind of undermines it, right? It gives Trump this upper hand, at least on Obamacare, that he he feels like he has in some business negotiations. Well, and he, he you know, has made this work as a, as a real estate developer. He had a very common sort of tactic of basically not paying bills that he owed, and then people would come back to him and would complain, and he would counter-complain that their work wasn't good enough, and they would say, well, you know, we're going to sue you, and then he would say, well, you know, if you want years of expensive litigation, uh, that's fine, and make them a lowball offer and, and settle it. And, you know, I mean, he's had a a lot of sort of struggles as a businessman, but it, it turns out that his philosophy of not paying uh, bills to contractors has actually worked really well for him. And, you know, he seems to be trying something somewhat similar with the Obamacare outreach workers, except in this case, he genuinely doesn't care if the job gets done. And, you know, he has some discretion around it. I believe he's not allowed to just literally not send out any money, but making people make him send the money out is itself a viable tactic, right? It's not like he's going to face a personal penalty. If there winds up being some litigation, eventually they drag a few million dollars out of the administration, still all kinds of workers will have been laid off, all kinds of programs will have been disrupted. Uh, you know, and I you think could- the personal penalty is the election, right? Like, that's like where this... I am, you rarely see a governor... You, and we've talked about this before in the weeds, but you rarely see a government saying, like, the best way to get reelected is by sabotaging my predecessor's programs. And then, you know, some sort of yada, 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 underwear gnomes, like step two. And then everyone's going to think, oh, this is great. Obamacare doesn't work. We should reelect you. Like, that's where it seems to, to fall right. apart. But, but, like, this is where it gets back to culture war, right? Like, Donald Trump doesn't appear to believe that the way he's going to get reelected is because his government is working well. He appears to believe the way he's going to get reelected is because he's sticking it to the people who his voters want to stick it to. Right. I mean, and it's it's definitely an odd philosophy. I mean, I, I think you you see a similar tactic being used on both immigration and healthcare, but it seems. On immigration, you sort of see the logic of it and like right. how this rewards his supporters, how he even thinks the sort of median American will either side with him or not really care. Uh, on healthcare, at least to me, it looks very different. I feel like if 12 months from now we're having a lot of headlines about, oh, premiums are spiking because all these insurers dropped out and marginal people didn't sign up, I don't think turning around and being like, you see, I've ruined everything <laughs> is going to be... <laughs> A right. great look. Yeah, it made fair. more sense to me when we were in the middle of the Obamacare repeal debate. So you could say, look at this dumb right. exploding thing. We need to pass something to replace it. It doesn't make any sense to me outside of that that context. It's like, look at this dumb exploding thing. And like, I'm the, I'm the president. I like, I don't know. It. I exploded <laughs> it. Like, that's not a great campaign slogan. All right, so we're, we're going to keep we things. Got, yeah. We're going to keep things moving along because we recognize you're you're here in the audience, not you know distracted by doing the dishes or anything. So we don't want to. We don't <laughs> want to. We, 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 we don't want to get, get too into boring. like the the clickbaity stuff we prepared. Yeah, we did. Canadian do immigration need to, like, system. Do calisthenics. You know, there is an aisle in the back. <laughs> When you have a great glass of wine, it really just enhances the moment, whether you're just reflecting on the day or with someone you love. 
Wink understands this, and it's why they started their company, to give you access to exceptional wines from around the world, so you can have more of those moments. Just go to trywink.com, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com, take a brief palate profile quiz, and Wink will recommend distinct and interesting wines, actually customized to your palate, to be shipped directly to your door every month. None of your time is wasted fitting in a run to the store, trying to get there on your way home from work, and you're not guessing what you might like or judging wines by their labels. Because Wink bases the wines they send you on your preferences, Wink will even introduce you to new, rare, and custom wines that are not available anywhere else and tell you the story behind them. No membership fees, skip any month, cancel any time, and Wink has a 100% satisfaction guarantee, so you never pay for a bottle you don't like. Right now, Wink is offering $20 off on your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. That's trywink, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C, dot com slash weeds to get $20 off your first order now. That is trywink.com slash weeds. We did a live show before in which we took a sort of deep dive, a look at the healthcare system in Singapore, which is something that is frequently cited in American debates, but I think rarely understood. I think we felt that there's a similar dynamic around Canadian immigration. It's common to hear people from a a wide range of political perspectives saying, well, look, in Canada, they have this way better system. Um, And then it's gets very hand-wavy as to what is that system and what is actually better about it. So we decided to take the time to, you know, really kind of take a, a look at it. And I'm going to pass the baton to, yeah, to sure. Dara here. Uh, so it, it turns out that the Canadian immigration system is both a lot easier to explain than the American one and that obviously any, you know, there are going to be a lot of nuances that get flattened, uh, largely because the Canadian government is pretty easily able to tweak who it lets in and how it judges who should be let in. So, you know, Sarah was actually reading a paper in preparation for this from 2012. And we were discussing earlier that like several of the problems cited in that 2012 paper have been fixed like two times yeah. over. Um, it's the so, fixing problems but, <laughs> is a kind of inspiring. It's the Canadian so, way, man. So basically Canada sets... In, Instead of having caps, which is the way the U.S. does it, you know, it's only going to allow a certain number of people in each year. And if, you know, your application comes in too late or if, you know, you're a super you're trying to apply for a super popular category, like better luck next year or two years from now or 10 years from now. In Canada, they set ranges and targets. So in general, they're trying to get about 300,000 people next year. Which is also a giant it's a, an number, enormous number, I would like to emphasize. Right. And it's, you know, whenever My understanding are, is that's bigger than if you add up, like, the undocumented and, like, documented folks coming to the U.S. It's still a larger number. Relative. And Canada is a relative to their population. It's really a significant number of immigrants. It really is. And, and when they have had backlogs in particular categories, they address them. Like, a few years ago, for a few years, there were too many people applying to bring over their spouses or dependent children. So they said, oh, we'll, we'll allow more of those people to come in so that we'll fix this backlog problem. Wait, wait, explain. But, but generally, right, right. So generally, <laughs> um, right now, a majority of people getting let into Canada are coming through the economic, for, for economic purposes. And that... In the U.S., that usually means you have to have a job offer. You're coming here to do a particular job. In Canada, they think of it as human capital, right? They are selecting people who they think have a good chance of thriving in Canada and contributing to the Canadian economy. So this is where you often get Republicans talk about how, like, oh, in Canada, they have merit-based immigration. They're talking about that human capital thing. They, you know, give you... 
get points for having fluency in English or French, for being educated, for being young, uh, for having, you know, particular professional qualifications. And then if you, you know, hit a certain threshold and qualify, you can, you can apply to, to, like, to kind of be in the pool. And they'll take the top candidates from the pool and say you can become a permanent resident of Canada. Which, by the way, is also different from the U.S., where the only people who become permanent residents immediately are family members. It's very difficult to, like, apply to become a permanent resident of the U.S. through economic means. Um, so they also, you know, unlike the U.S., where the majority of people are family getting here on family visas uh family reunification is like about oh i have this i have this it's about uh 28 percent of people who are who come in as opposed to like 57 percent are economic and then the remaining are mostly refugees they uh in 2017 they're taking in 40,000 refugees that's actually a huge decrease from 2015 2016 when they jiggered the whole system differently so that they could take in a lot of Syrian refugees. And now they're trying to bring that back to, you know, make sure that the economic and family systems don't get too much strain put on them. So when people talk about kind of the, like, emphasis is to skilled workers rather than family members, that's what they're talking about. But there are also kind of these quirks in the Canadian system. For example, you don't have to meet all of the standards for economic immigration if you have an agreement to immigrate to a particular province. And like provinces can set their own standards and those actually have succeeded a little bit better because it turns out when an entire country is saying you have to be educated, you have to have money. Uh, I once tried to apply last year just for kicks and giggles to see if I could apply to to immigrate to Canada. I did not have enough money because I did not have a job offer. And so the Canadian government was not confident that I could support myself if I moved to Canada. Um, Matt is a little more fortunate because Matt is fluent in French. Uh, and so, but... Um, so what are like the outcomes right. of a system like this? Yeah, like so what happens right. when you set up these particular policies? Well, the, so the, this, is, this is the thing. Not every immigrant who qualifies to go to Canada because they're professionally qualified is able to get a job that fits their professional qualifications. There have actually been the biggest problems for Canadian immigrants finding employment and particularly higher income employment are among the Canadians who have bachelor's or among the immigrants who have bachelor's degrees. There's a bigger degree of what's called brain waste in Canadian immigrants than than native born Canadian citizens because there's more to getting a job than just having on paper a bachelor's degree and you know maybe you had a license in your home country, but the licensing requirements in Canada require things that only Canadians are going to have. You don't necessarily have the professional network to get a job. Your employer may not recognize that the university you have a degree from was a really great university in your home country. There are all kinds of complicated things. And so the government has tried to do little bits and pieces to get better job matching for immigrants. But recently they actually said, well, maybe we should make sure immigrants actually have job offers, which is something that the provinces tend to do. You can only, they'll, they'll take people, but you should have a job offer in is the province. Is that fair then to think of them tilting like a little more similar to the U.S.? System. It would be, except, and this is where <laughs> we get into the like the constant tweaking thing. That happened in 2015. They they made some changes so that it was a lot easier to get invited to apply if you had a job offer, and it was a lot harder to get invited to apply if you didn't. They didn't particularly like that. They only like 65% of people who were getting invited to apply 
uh, were getting invited for human capital reasons, uh, they thought that they needed more of those people who didn't have job offers. So they made some changes in November 2016. And immediately, like from November 2016 to February 2017, the number of people who were getting invited to apply for permanent residency without having job offers went from 65% to 90%. And they were very happy about that. So like they have these constant, they're trying to balance this idea of inviting the most you know, successful immigrants to Canada to see if they can make it away for themselves and trying to deal with the short-term labor market needs that may not actually need all of these scientists. Maybe they need taxi drivers or truckers instead. Um, but, be, but because they're able to change the system pretty easily, they don't have to, you know, veer too far to one side with legislation and then veer too far to the other side with legislation. They're able to set these targets on an annual basis and then kind of make changes to the system even throughout the year. But so, too, I, I think there's an interesting lesson here, right? Because the, at least in American politics, we should have a more Canadian system means not literally we should have the system that they have, but it means we should do what they do and select highly in favor of people with college degrees, and particularly people with technical degrees. Uh, But the actual Canadian experience has been that when you let in a lot of people with professional qualifications but no specific job, that they come and they tend to get jobs, but they tend to not actually be doing those white-collar professional jobs. The taxi-driving doctor has literally been a stereotype in Canadian politics for the last couple of decades. And so then they, in in actual Canada, they then tend to ping-pong over to the other idea, which is, well, we should say companies can bring workers over or people who have concrete job offers can come over. But then it turns out that the kinds of people who get those job offers tend to not be skilled professionals necessarily. Right. So they themselves are in their own version of this dilemma, right? Like what what everybody at least like thinks they want is that they're going to get an immigrant population of superstar scientists who all have these, I don't know, like glamorous and incredibly lucrative uh, research jobs. But actually on both sides of the border, you see some powerful dynamics seem to be matching foreign-born people into jobs that don't have a lot of formal skill requirements. And I think the other thing to kind of be aware of in this is like, that this is, you know, the point system is one of the three main streams, the other ones being family and like humanitarian refugee stuff. And instead of saying it is a good thing that most of our people are coming economically. And, you know, if you want to bring your family over, you should have to wait or you shouldn't be able to. Whenever they actually have too many applications for family reunification or whenever they really want to make a point of welcoming in refugees, they say, we're going to let fewer economic immigrants in this year. Sorry, that's just the way it's going to be. And the Canadian polity is pretty okay with that. It really, when immigration experts talk about Canadian exceptionalism. They're not talking about something policy-wise that Canada has managed to do that other countries have not managed to do. They're talking about the fact that Canadians really appreciate their government's welcoming immigration policy, and Canada hasn't had the kind of nativist backlash that the U.S. and Australia and the EU have all had in the last decade. So it it's pretty clear that this is a policy solution that only works because the political consensus is we can trust the government to take care of immigration. Immigrants are good. 
you know, even no matter whether they have doctor's degrees or are fleeing from Syria, like both of those are cool kinds of immigrants. But that's kind of one of my questions about it, because it feels like a very chicken and egg, like policy situation. Like you can have a Canadian immigration system if, you know, your people like immigration, but they seem to, you know, because there's been such a high amount of immigration, my understanding is over 200,000, averaging like 200,000, 250,000, now going up to 300,000. It, and, and a lot of people are, are mad that it didn't go up to 450,000 this year, by the way, <laughs> wow. which is insane. Like to, yeah. to raise the number of immigrants by 50% in a single year, could we, we couldn't do anything like that. We, we right. can only but talk I, about cutting it. I'm curious if you have thought, since you like look at that, is like how, is it just like you could, you know, again, like I go back to healthcare and like I think we, we've let our prices get too high and now we can't have a single payer system or it's going to be hard to have a single payer system because our prices are too high. Like we went down one policy path and it seems to make us very, very stuck in that space. And I'm curious, is there like an early decision like that Canada makes that gets them to a place where people are, are on board with immigration, where people, you know, do seem to be, it's really interesting. A lot of the polling suggests like Canadians are really supportive of immigration, that they like this idea, that they, they agree with the notion that um, that immigrants contribute to the economy, that they make the economy stronger and poll numbers that are quite different in the United States, which that seems like a big barrier to bringing over, you know, a Canadian system, even just talking about the sheer, sheer numbers, the numbers and format are a little different. But I'm curious, like, if you see a decision they made that like leads to this circumstance where people are like, yeah, let's go to 450. Like, let's go to 600. Like, let's see how, how high we can take this thing. I don't think it's a policy decision so much as a policy circumstance. Canada has never had a substantial unauthorized immigration problem. Canada has a, you know, the only land border Canada has is with the U.S., and unauthorized migration from the U.S. into Canada has not historically been a big problem, although that's Watch actually... Out. No, that's, that's... And that's beginning to change, not because of, like, white progressives being like, I'm going to move to Canada, but because the very same <laughs> Haitians that we were just talking about are... Many of them are trying to seek asylum in Canada because they know their time is running out in the United States. But um, because... It's easy to think of the U.S. as being the only, you know, immigrant receiving country that kind of has this big unauthorized migration problem because of its border with with Mexico. But Australia, over the last couple of decades, has had a lot of, you know, migration by by boat from south from Southeast Asia. The EU, their nativist politics have kind of been spurred by this influx of refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and you know certain African countries. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of nativist backlash when you see a lot of people surging in who shouldn't, who don't already have papers that restricts the idea that government can control migration and can act in the best interest of the Canadian people, or can, you know, can act in the best interest of the polity. And Canada has never really had that problem. So the idea that the government, you know, there's never been a circumstance where it's been clear that the government can't control who comes in, which means that, of course, the default position is going to be that, you know, you can trust the government to make the right decisions. I I do also think that the sort of devolving of some responsibilities to to provincial governments is an interesting idea that, you know, maybe has some relevance in in the U.S. I mean, at least my understanding is the sort of Canadian origins of that is the the language situation in Quebec, where the Quebec government was essentially afraid that uh, 
by default, immigrants to Canada would want to assimilate into English Canadian culture, right? That if you if you don't natively speak English or French, and your kids are going to learn one language, or you're going to try to learn a language, you would want to make it English. It's the you know more popular global language, and that was very threatening to Quebecois identity. And so they got permission to create a system in which I guess they can sort of. Uh, lower the bar on some other things to bring French-speaking people over into Quebec. And then they also have a a bunch of domestic legislation about who has to go into French-language schools and and things like that. And then other provinces wound up sort of claiming some similar, not for linguistic reasons, but the point is, is that whether it's Manitoba or Quebec or whatever, the province can try to get the kind of immigrants that stakeholders who are living in that province well, one other, particularly yeah, want. One other idea that kind of came up in this 2012 paper that had some outdated figures, but mm-hmm. they had the kind of theory there that I thought was pretty interesting, that Canada, because it has always been a two-language country, that you have Quebec, where it's just French-speaking, and Canada, the rest of Canada, English-speaking, um, that it's always been a country that's been more comfortable with different languages, different cultures, that it's set it up a little bit more able to absorb different cultures, that it was not one where, you know, it would be really weird to us, you know, if there's one state, you know, if, like, in Georgia, everyone spoke a different language. But in Canada, that's just kind of how it is. Like, you know, you have Quebec, it's a different language. So I thought that was an interesting... But it it, it also seems to challenge the idea of translating the Canadian ideas to the U.S. and having a lot of people show up in the U.S. without jobs. I think that it, it seems very hard... But at the same time, you know, we're seeing actually the people proposing these ideas are, are Republicans. There is a right. plan being proposed by a few Republicans to do a merit-based um, immigration system in the United States that has some silly qualities to it. I think you get a lot of points if you are an Olympian or a Nobel Laureate, which seems like to... But not but, in literature. Right. <laughs> oh, it, it, yeah, has so, to, it has so to be a Nobel Prize in, in, in sciences. sciences. Yeah. So, but um, it's, it, yeah, yeah, it I seems mean, to I challenge think, that policy. the things that you guys are describing are kind of... To, there are two aspects of what's actually a, uh, an urban-rural split. Um, Canada, a lot of people live in the three big major metro areas. A lot, a lot of immigrants live in one of those three major metro areas. So Canada has, you know, three very big, very cosmopolitan cities that they're very proud of. And this is a lot of why the provincial system kind of expanded beyond Quebec, is Manitoba is going, well, we would like to have some, like, truck drivers. We don't have enough of those. Everybody's moving to the cities. Can we maybe like change our rules so that we can bring some people in? Um, the, the provinces that have used this the most aggressively are the provinces that don't have Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver in them. And so this Winnipeg has been Winnipeg is lovely though, if you've never been. <laughs> yeah. um, it's great. I saw a metric play there. It was, uh, it's a great Canadian experience. So... You know, the, the concern that tends to get raised in the comparative context when you have, very, like, subnational immigration policies is, yeah, but how do you keep people there? And actually, in Australia, there is a requirement, like, you have to—Australia has something like this, but you have to promise to stay there for a certain amount of time. Canada, it's a lot laxer, but people tend to stay. As long as they are fluent in the local language and as long as they retain jobs, it, they're going to stay in Manitoba. They're not going to move to one of the— the like big cosmopolitan cities. So I think that this is kind of 
giving parts of Canada that haven't had a cosmopolitan experience a way to see immigrants as people who do the jobs that Canadians won't do, which is something that in the American context is often derided because, you know, instead of seeing... we're not seeing the labor gaps that result when you don't have enough immigrants. We're seeing the immigrants doing the jobs. And so, well, are you sure that Americans wouldn't do those jobs if they were needed becomes a hypothetical question. Whereas in Canada, they're able to say, well, we actually do have a labor shortage here. We're going to bring these immigrants to fill this particular need. And so having a place in the community and a place in society is fairly easily assured. Yeah, you should tell us about the best labor shortage. You should tell us about the best labor shortage in Canadian immigration. (laughs) A funny story that that I'd read years ago, but that I think uh, Dara's bigger overview helped me make sort of better sense of is there was a, a funny story in in a, a, a Canadian magazine, and it was about the saga of uh, work visas for strippers, uh, which had become a very sort of popular visa category at, at one time. And, you know, owners of strip clubs petitioned some government agency, and they got an official finding that there was a labor shortage in this field. And so people Guest were coming... workers, by the way, are another thing where Canada has kind of edged closer to the U.S. and having more of them because they've needed right. to, to fill Because you need shortages. to fill that stripper gap. Yeah. Well, so they, so they were... You can't have doctors so there so basically, the, the law had set up a kind of value-neutral, technocratic uh, <laughs> system in which you were able to say, I, I don't know what exactly the criteria were, but look, well, we have a shortage here. So they were sponsoring. I really like to think of the technocrat in the room, like working on the stripper shortage paper. Right. And like, they're going to, I don't know how you research that. You but- do field work. So you do field work. And <laughs> the, the stage lights come up and the music starts oh, and the yeah. lights are on the pole and the pole is empty for just three whole minutes. <laughs> And okay, they were shorted. Right. Um, so this turns into like an actual issue in Canada. Right, but so the point of the story is, I, I think, in America, if you had something weird happening, right, where obviously the government was not like intending to create the large-scale importation of Eastern European strippers, it was just that <laughs> the rule that was set up allowed the strip club owners to apply for these visas. They qualified under the rules. But once people started talking about this, like, oh, there's actually a really large number of foreigners coming in on stripper visas. Uh, the, the government just changed the policy, right? And they didn't, like, pass a comprehensive immigration reform in which every possible active. aspect of the system was subject to scrutiny, and you had this, like, huge coalition of stakeholders from every conceivable province and all the lobbyists everywhere. Instead, there was a conservative government in Canada, which, uh, you know... Canadian conservatives aren't exactly like American conservatives, but they are a little bit more on the socially conservative side. And they were like, you know what? The immigration system is about, you know, making the Canadian economy flourish. It's not about strippers. And so they just turn the screws down on that, right? And that's really something that we're not in a position to do in the United States, right? That we talk... Well, can Constantly. you explain why that is? Like, what's different? Why could America's we... garbage. I actually... <laughs> but I, well, I, this, is, this is a policy show. So no, I, I, I want the policy I, I'm actually less... I, I, I feel like either the Canadian or the person who once got an A in a Canadian <laughs> politics class can talk yeah. about Canadian government much more fluently generally, but like... Or what US, stops us in the U.S.? In, in the U.S., all of the numbers are set by legislation, pretty much. Um, the only exception for that is refugees. So, and even the bill that some Republicans are proposing for this points-based system, the text of the bill sets very specific points, whereas in Canada, not only was the, are the point systems not set by legislation, but, like, literally, 
the government can just say, oh, you now get 600 points if you have a provincial nomination. That should be enough to get you into the top tier of people, so you should be okay. It's There's, there's a much more flexibility to the administrative state, like to the extent that very few of the major changes in Canadian immigration policy have actually been initiated through the legislature. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, in America, we do, I mean, we have a lot of government functions that are sort of left to executive branch discretion. Which is what we, we were talking about in the first segment. Because, right. yeah. okay. <laughs> you know, when the legislature has to set all, all of the rules, then you wouldn't have the kind of uncertainty that we have. In- but it's interesting that we actually haven't seen, you know, maybe this is like from your, your A in your Canadian politics class, you can explain why, but we haven't actually seen, um, you know, that leeway, like ping pong. Like I think one of the things we're seeing right now because of the polarization, polarization in the U.S. is Trump trying to use any kind of executive leeway he has to overturn mm-hmm. what um, what Obama did in healthcare and environment and immigration, but you don't actually you don't actually see that happening. You just see immigration numbers relatively constant, like a little bit of reaction. Like when you have when you have a conservative government, like the stripper visas get knocked down a little bit, but you don't see this like wild fluctuation, even though the flexibility is there. I mean, I, mean, I think it's that it's because that, you know, the way we think of the separation of powers in America is the legislative branch makes laws and the executive branch enforces them. And so a lot of these things that we're talking about come down to questions of law enforcement, which is, you know, those are always resource questions about like, how do you prioritize what laws, what law breaking you're going to focus on or like what laws you're going to spend the most resources to, to maximize. But I mean, I do think, you know, I, I mean, again, there's a this sort of concept of, of a merit-based system, a Canadian system, more focused on economic growth. But that's been instantiated by Tom Cotton, sort of with the support of Jeff Sessions rhetorically. And these are people who fundamentally do not like the idea of immigration, who see a kind of cultural immigration threat. And so their bill sets hard numerical targets, and it says very low hard numerical targets, right? And I think the I would say broader lesson of the Canadian experience is that if you want a system of immigration that is supposed to meet economic needs, you need you want to set up an agency that has some kind of uh, not hard numerical requirements, but some kind of uh, conceptual mandate, right? Like you are supposed to create a visa system that meets the following goals and then has some flexibility to adjust it from year to year. You might want to say, well, we can take into consideration regional labor market situations so that, you know, for example, even at the depths of the Great Recession in the United States, the unemployment rate in North Dakota remained exceptionally low uh, because they had an oil boom there, because people are a little disinclined to move to very cold, very remote states. But so there could have been some real advantages to specifically funneling foreigners who, you know, by definition are willing to move someplace to get a job to a place like that, which was experiencing ultra low unemployment, rather than to just sort of traditional gateway cities where people are most inclined to go. But that's the kind of thing that necessarily is going to change over time, right? I mean, which regions are experiencing incredible shortages of housing supply, which regions are experiencing shortages of workers is going to shift. America in particular is, is much bigger than Canada or Australia, has incredible internal diversity. 
And labor market needs are difficult to assess in advance, right? I mean, you sort of have some guys sitting around in a Senate office in Arkansas being like, well, we really needed people with master's degrees in STEM. And, you know, maybe, I mean, that it's it sounds plausible, but it's the kind of thing where if you put that system into place, it might not work out, right? If it turns out that you're extremely heavily biasing toward people with STEM master's degrees, but nobody in America actually wants to hire those people for skilled jobs, you would want to be able to do what the Canadians have done and said, okay, this rule is not achieving what we wanted it to achieve, so we're going to go do something else. Congress, by its nature, just like doesn't revisit bills that frequently. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Zeal brings you same-day in-home massages with the best licensed and vetted massage therapist right in your home. Just go to zeal.com or go on Zeal's iPhone or Android app, and that's zeal, spelled Z-E-E-L.com, and select from top local licensed and pre-screened massage therapists. Seven days a week, 365 days a year, a Zeal massage therapist can be in your door in as little as an hour. You get privacy, convenience, quality, and comfort. That's what you get with your on-demand Zeal massage. Zeal will send one of their 9,000 licensed massage therapists with a massage table, music, everything you need to turn your living room into a spa and give you a five-star massage. All the scheduling, booking, and payment, it's very fast, easy, even the tip is included. Find out for yourself why Zeal has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Vogue, and on Good Morning America. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Really, literally, today. They're on demand. You could have the best massage of your life in your home with Zeal today. To help you get started, our listeners can get $25 off their first massage by using the promo code THEWEEDS at checkout. And it gets better. Sign up for Zeal's massage membership and get $20 off all of your massages, plus a free massage table and sheet set. That's a $380 value, totally free. There's no initiation fee to join, just a great additional savings on top of that $25 discount you'll get when you use the promo code THEWEEDS. So go to Zeal, spelled Z-E-E-L dot com, or on Zeal's iPhone or Android app, and then make sure to click add promo code at checkout to use our The Weeds code and get $25 off your first in-home on-demand massage. So I think it is time for a white paper. I have no smooth transition. But which one? But which one? Dun, dun, dun. So. <laughs> I have in my hand. So here's, if you guys listen to our podcast, you know, we usually end with a white paper of the week and maybe you like them, maybe you don't. You can yell at your, you know, phone, but there's not much you can do. Well, that, that era of the weeds is over today. So, so uh, myself, Matt, and Dara have all brought our favorite white papers um, we're gonna, we, we decided on some ground rules yesterday. We each have one minute to pitch our white paper and then we'll let you guys choose which one you would like us to discuss. Um, so we can keep you guys engaged and involved since you don't have your dishes or dogs to be walking or things you probably normally do listening to us. So, um, I have my phone to time. Who wants to, who wants to start us off? I'll start us off. I don't right. need, I don't need a minute. Okay. I have the white paper. <laughs> oh, that's a bold. All right, Go. I have the white paper that proves that border walls totally backfire. Okay, that was five seconds. So that's what Dara's got. Wait, I want to say, okay, so, so I have... <laughs> you, oh, oh, sorry, I'll stop your minute. You yeah, started. let's okay. go. Okay. Are you ready? Do you want your full minute? Well, I'll, I'll see what I do. Okay, all right, you ready? 
All right, so I've brought for you Time is a Network Good, Evidence from Unemployment in the Standard Workweek by Cristobal Young and Cheyun Lim. Um, and this is a paper, an in-depth statistical study, and what it proves is that weekends are fun. Um, <laughs> And that they are fun not only for people who have jobs and look forward to some time off on the weekend, but they are even fun for unemployed people who also look forward to weekend fun. Um, and I, it's, to, to me, it's a fascinating paper. It comes from uh, sociological science. There's a lot of goofball sociology jargon. Um, but I enjoy it because I, I normally find myself reading uh, economics papers in which you know, there's a tendency in economics to not consider things like the weekend is fun because your friends have time off as well as you. Uh, and it's a, it's a great sort of glimpse into collective action and, you know, you how it seconds. works and why it's valuable. All right. That was great. Here, you want to you wanna keep me? About time, yeah. Timed? Okay. All right. That's, that's a high bar. All right. So I chose the most important health insurance study from the past 50 years. This is the Rand Health Insurance Experiment from 1973. And It was a quarter-billion-dollar investment by the federal government to start its own mini-health insurance company in six cities. It is weird that it ever happened. It taught us most of the things we know about health insurance and how it works. And I think it is um, probably... It's this weird Nixon-era project that will never happen again. I think it is the most important white paper in healthcare. 34 seconds. All right. Wow. Okay. All right. So um, we just need you guys to cheer. Only cheer for one, okay? Because we're trying to do this very scientifically. Um, and everyone cheer at the exact same volume. So we'll start. <laughs> this will be great. This will, if not, we'll just ask someone in the front row to break a tie. So we'll start with who wants to hear about the border wallpaper? Okay. That's pretty strong. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> who wants to hear about the paper that shows weekends are fun? I think, is that slightly more? This is really, this isn't work. Okay, and who wants to hear about the Rand Health Insurance Experiment? Oh, yeah. Did I win? Oh, you win. Ah, yes. Victory. Everyone loves the Rand. So what did Richard Nixon tell us about healthcare? (laughs) Um, We'll do the other papers on some later. His visionary, outdated information. (laughs) Okay. So this is, uh, this, this is the only long-term experimental study of how your co-pays affect how much health insurance you get, how much you go to the doctor, and whether any of that stuff actually makes you any healthier. So back in the 1970s, they were actually having a very similar debate to the one we're having now about, should we do Medicare for all? Should we do single payer? Um, and they didn't really know what would happen, you know, depending on if we gave people great insurance with like no deductible or crappy insurance with like a $6,000 deductible. So these kind of nerds at Rand, they they write up this grant that they basically want to start their own health insurance company to test these things. This has never been done before. It has never been done since. And they get the federal government to fund it. Um, They get in today's dollars, $250 million over a decade to run a health insurance company covering 7,000 people in six different cities, which is just an insanely large study. Um, They start in 1971, they finish in 1983, and they assign people to really great health insurance where everything is free, and they assign them to what honestly isn't even really health insurance. Um, It it has 95% cost sharing, which means... Um, shittiest health insurance plan ever. Um, it means you pay 95%, your insurance pays 5%. Um, right, exactly. Um, it's great. And so what they find, I, th- I think, are two interesting things that really um, 
shape a lot of what health economists know about health insurance today. I was watching, there's a fabulous um, video summary of this, of the RAND experiment at 40 years that I watched yesterday, I highly recommend, um, where they mentioned it actually... Um, the see, the weekend is fun. See, the weekend, that's what I... <laughs> Um, the Congressional Budget Office, they used this RAND study when they modeled the Affordable Care Act. Like, how cool is that? Um, so what they find are two really big key findings. One is that demand for healthcare, whether it's healthcare you super need or healthcare you don't really need, it's pretty elastic. It varies with how much you're going to have to pay. And that's great news because it means we can just encourage people to use less healthcare they don't need, like less MRI scans that aren't actually going to do any value, but it also means that, you know, people, if they have cost sharing for that ER visit they really do need, that they're going to skip it. That we're not actually great judges of what is necessary or unnecessary care. And we respond to any sort of cost sharing exactly the same, whether or not we actually need the health care. The second thing they find, which has been a lot of tension in health policy ever since, is that health insurance actually doesn't matter for a lot of our health. That health insurance, for most people, doesn't make you healthier. The exemption is really low income, really sick Americans. So they did find for the poorest people in this study that um, their hypertension was better controlled. They had better um, results with their vision, better um, dental outcomes, um, better, you know, less really serious symptoms. But for most higher income Americans, there actually isn't much of an effect on your health. And this is, you know, I will say this is a study done over five years. That's not 10 years, 20 years, I'm sure there are things down the line, but they're showing in the longest term study we've seen so far that health insurance does not really seem to make most of us healthier. Um, that being said, you know, I have health insurance. I've not read this story and said like, well, screw this. Like, I'm going to save my money and not pay my premiums. I like being able to go to the doctor, but it challenges, I think, and you know, in this brand video, that's great. You, you see a lot of the doctors who worked on this study say it really challenged their view of their profession. It's hard to think about the idea that a lot of the services that you do might not be actually making people healthier. And this is the only experimental setting we've ever seen this proved in. It's really hard to find someone to pay you to start an insurance company and randomize people into different types of insurance. So it's really the most enduring research we have on the topic. So here's my question about this. It, It seems, you know, during the debate over the Affordable Care Act, uh, a lot of Democrats were using the talking point that, like, yeah, you know, the free market is good and the government shouldn't get too involved, but healthcare isn't like other markets. Like, it's a different thing than, you know, traditional capitalism. And it seems like the lesson of this study is that healthcare is like other markets and that's not always a good thing. (laughs) I mean, I think it is like other markets and that demand changes based on price, that you are more, and I think, like, you know, I am probably more willing to go to urgent care if I have to pay $25 than if I had to pay like $500. Um, I think that is certainly true. I think what is not like other markets is when I have, well, I, if I had a heart attack, you know, because then like my demand is completely inelastic. Like I, I need to go to the doctor. I need to go be seen. I might not even be conscious and someone in an ambulance is going to take me there. So I think it really depends on the services. I think you're right that one of the things we didn't know before this study was, you know, is demand for effective necessary care, how elastic is this? And that was something we we learned from this, that actually, you know, it does preventive care, which, for example, we have good evidence is helpful over the long run. That responds to economic incentives. You know, people are going to skip some of that if there is more of an economic barrier. So I think I think of it more for those big picture things or, you know, also for things like, cancer treatment, really expensive, um, things you actually really do need to like 
stay alive, that's where you see a lot of the inelastic demand coming in. But so how do we square this, this notion that, you know, when you, when you raise the price, people's consumption goes way down and, and it doesn't hurt them that much with, I, I think I read a, someone named Sarah Cliff had a, <laughs> some charts that explain American healthcare. And I, I think you were saying that like half of healthcare spending is concentrated in, was it like 5%? 5% or it's like so. a very small number of very sick people yeah. are accounting for the vast majority of spending, which seems, I mean, not like contradictory to this RAND study, but it, it seems to me to like push in another direction, right? That like, the implication of the RAND study feels like, well, people are really sloppy at buying healthcare, right? That like, we're just getting a mishmash of stuff. It's largely useless. If it cost more, you would buy less and be just as well off. But then we're looking at it, it's like, well, half the spending is coming from 5% of people who are super sick. And like, don't they need medicine? Yeah. So I think it's kind of like what is picking up on, right? right? Like, there's a lot of these, like, big-ticket items that are actually quite necessary. And I think the hard part, I mean, even when doctors are delivering this care, they, always, they don't always know the difference between ineffective and effective. Like, a lot of times they're like, you know, medicine is not certain. There's a lot of times doctors are throwing different solutions at things. Some of them are working. Some of them aren't. But I think there is certainly... I would not read this study. I think it would be a misreading of this study to say, medicine is useless. Like, let's just, like throw this all out the door, take that 18% of economy, like give everyone more weekends and like we'll all have like a lot more fun. I think it, <laughs> you could have. <laughs> we we get some video Sarah games. actually packed the house with ringers. No, I didn't. I just, I have a few people here, not a lot. Um, and I, I take it to say that we overvalue a lot of the services we pay for. I think you see this a lot, for example, in... Um, expensive cancer drugs. One of the things we've seen in the past few years is the proliferation of really, really expensive chemotherapy that extends life maybe a day or two longer that has very few gains on the last drug that came on the market. And I think that is kind of what is surfacing in the RAND study, that we have a lot of spending going into things that are not truly innovative, that are kind of piggybacking on old technology. And and it's hard, right? Because if you're the person seeking that treatment, you probably want that one or two extra day. Like you are, if, and if your insurance covers it, like you're absolutely going to say, like, yes, that's the one I want. But I think what the RAND study picks up on for me is that there's a lot of expensive healthcare that happens, you know, that, that has marginal effects and that that stuff really isn't, isn't doing that much for us and we're spending a lot of money on it. That's a really interesting point because it kind of, the one of the critiques that gets raised of, you know, these super expensive new technologies is that, like, they're somehow, you know, that the doctors are being bribed or that they're being, you know, financially incentivized to promote this stuff because they're getting kickbacks. And, like, that is certainly, that is descriptively true to a certain extent, but it sounds like what you're describing is people who have the resources who are acting out of this very, like, benevolent impulse, like, don't you want to try everything you can to save your loved one's life or to save your own life, that kind of thing, and that that's leading them to try things that have very little marginal effect that are going to allow them to feel like they've done everything they can. It's a very expensive security blanket. And I think, you know, doctors get caught up on that, too. I Actually, I did an interview with um, Atul Gawande last week in D.C. that was on the Weeds feed on Friday, and he talks about this exact idea that it's really hard as a doctor to say, like, I don't have any good options for you. So you say, well, I have this option that like 
might work a little bit better and don't worry about the price because you have insurance. Like, and they'll say like, yeah, yeah, I'll take like the thing that might work better, even though nothing is going to work that great. Um, I do want to emphasize like one of the things I think that is important that I mentioned a little bit quickly is that this study does show an effect on low-income Americans. So I think it is not the case that it, it, this suggests to me that for if we wanted to, you know, be the most evidence-based in how we spent our healthcare dollars, I would really concentrate them in programs like Medicaid. And we have seen studies, you know, since then, since the Medicaid expansion happened, some states expanded, some didn't. It gave us a really nice natural experiment. And we have seen a few studies, although they're, you know, a little bit mixed, suggesting lower mortality rates among states that um, expanded Medicaid. There is also, the other one I was debating bringing was the Oregon Health Experiment, which I'm sure some of you, no, <laughs> you don't like that one? That one's terrible. Okay, well, <laughs> I didn't bring this, that one. There's low statistical power that's in that true. study. Well, we're not, that's, that's a debate for another weeds. But um, I think it is certainly true. The thing I read from this is like, if we want to spend our, um, our healthcare dollars wisely, and Matt and I were talking about this before we started the show, I'd almost see like structuring a healthcare system that is Medicare for all, but then having a Medicaid program still for low-income Americans who, you know, would see gains from having lower spending on their health care. So uh, this, uh, to see if I understand it right, this was a very sort of like crude cost-sharing concept where it was like you get a 30% copayment for everything, right? So... I mean, that's, that's sort of, like, fun for experimental purposes, but in, in like, like, the Affordable Care Act, right, in most policy, we have, like, smarty-pants policymakers who are saying... Do we? Well, <laughs> well, they're trying, right? They're saying, right, I mean, we say, like, okay, for this, like, preventative stuff, you have, like, low or no co-payments, and then, I, I mean, I, I guess the study doesn't quite speak to that, but, I mean, we we can at least try as, like, citizens and policymakers to be like smarter than this study design and to impose cost sharing on particular areas of medicine where evidence for efficacy is mixed, but where we identify high efficacy, make sure that people can get that for free, right? So it it sounds like what you're asking for is a redo of the RAND health insurance experiment with the flexibility of the Canadian immigration system. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, no, but I mean, so it's like, yeah. we're, we're very confident, right? Like, um, the measles vaccine works, yeah. right? So, like, you could make that free, right. even without accepting the idea that all medicine should be free. Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer that question, but after this, we are going to take some questions from you guys, and we have a microphone right here. So, we only have, like, 15 minutes or so. So, if you have anything you definitely want to ask us, feel free to head over there, and I'll... So I think you're right. Like, I think you see most insurance plans do make the measles vaccine free for exactly that reason. They think in the long term it's going to be a lot cheaper to give someone a measles vaccine than treat a kid with measles. But I think the place where this gets hard is like an emergency room visit. Sometimes those are necessary. Sometimes those aren't. And it's really hard for us as patients. The reason you go to the emergency room is like to find out if it's necessary or not. Like you, you go because you're not a doctor and you need a doctor to tell you like, yeah, this is an emergency or no, it's not. I think that's the place where we, where we have this mix of like efficient, inefficient care and when you raise the cost sharing, you have good and bad outcomes. You have, some, you, you have more people staying home from the emergency room. And the RAND study suggests there will be an equal number of people who are staying home who didn't need to be there and an equal number of people who did need to be there and are going to have some more expensive care down the line because they didn't get treated. Everyone at some point has wished they could just have beer, wine, or liquor delivered. Well, someone finally decided to do something about it. Introducing Saucy, the alcohol delivery app. 
Saucy delivers your favorite wine, beer, or liquor right to your door on demand. It's basically Uber for alcohol. Now, if you're in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, San Diego, or Sacramento, your Saucy order will arrive at your door in 30 minutes or less, ready to drink. For the rest of us, Saucy will deliver wine, beer, liquor to your door in two days or less, nationwide. There are no order minimums, no delivery fees, and no running to the store. If you've got the Saucy app, you've got a fully stocked bar on your phone. And for a limited time, you can get $15 off when you download the Saucy app and enter the promo code WEEDS. That's the Saucy app, spelled S-A-U-C-E-Y, and enter the promo code WEEDS for $15 off. Get the Saucy app today and use the promo code WEEDS. Okay. All right. We're going to open it up to yeah, our audience here. Questions. You're, Hello. You're shrouded just, in blinding you're, Yeah, spotlight. we can't really see you. It's so <laughs> bright up here. But um, just tell Hi. us who you are and your question. Um, my name is Marissa. Thanks for coming. This has been great. I could talk immigration policy for hours. Um, I'm going to, I have a few hours till my training. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Let's just do this. Um, so my question, you mentioned uh, the temporary protected status for Haitians is going away. Um, but TPS or is a question mark right now. Um, but TPS is covering a bunch of different countries, some of which have had TPS for years and years and years. Is there any kind of information about what is happening to those statuses? So because TPS is granted on a country by country basis, there are different timelines uh, for reviewing and, you know, either extending or getting rid of it. Um, there are a few countries where TPS extensions are are up this are coming up this year for review, and the general message that the Trump administration has sent is that they think that TPS has been extended for too long for many of these countries. Um, so, I know that Afghanistan is coming up soon. I think El Salvador is coming up soon. Um, there's. I, I have the number on this, and I, but it's like not random access memory, but it, we're talking about like tens, to, uh, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and while they haven't gotten the same, you know, we're going to extend it for six months, but then we probably won't extend it after that officially, the sense out there is that the Trump administration is going to continue to kind of quietly wind down this stuff. So it's definitely something, you know, when I was talking to a bunch of immigration history experts uh, last week in preparation for this DACA stuff, uh, they were all pointing to TPS as the thing that they're really worried about because while DACA is fairly new, a lot of these people who have been here under TPS, you know, like you said, have been here for a very long time. They've been protected for a very long time. And even before that, they were living in the U.S. as unauthorized immigrants. So they're very concerned that this kind of you should start packing your bags policy is going to start pushing a lot of people back into the shadows. Question about the New York State Constitutional Convention referendum, and this is probably mostly <laughs> Matt. from Matt. But <laughs> why, have we not, why have we not heard more about this, and what do you think about the concept? I don't know why we haven't heard more about it. I have not heard much about it. Um, you know, I, I think that it is a good idea to try to revisit some state constitutions and, and things like that in a reasonable kind of time frame. Um, but I will admit that I don't know very much uh, about the specifics of this. I guess, as you're saying, we have not heard a lot about it. <laughs> so I have to plead ignorance. You found the one thing Matt doesn't know about. So congratulations. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, my name is Nick. Uh, you guys speak a lot about healthcare policy on the podcast, obviously, all the time. Uh, most of that 
tends to focus on either cost reduction or expanding coverage. But as Ezra and Mark Andreessen spoke about, innovation is the other kind of core important uh, aspect of our healthcare system. Are there any policies that you guys think could improve innovation, medical innovation in our economy without hurting either pricing or coverage? Yeah, so I think there's certainly been, there is a lot of, I think it is certainly true about the United States that we produce a lot of the healthcare innovation for the rest of the world. One of the reasons we're able to do that is because American drug companies have, um, you know, a population of 300 million people who will pay whatever prices they set for their products. And I think that certainly encourages innovation. And I'm sympathetic to the idea that if you do, if you if you regulate drug prices in the United States, you lose some of that innovation. And it's a bit of a trade-off there about how much innovation you're okay with losing. And I think I personally am okay with losing some if it means more access. But I think one idea that's become appealing to me is the idea of, um, of prizes for medical technology. So essentially saying there is, let's say like an Alzheimer's cure, for example. That's something we would really value as a society. We really want to encourage drug makers to chase that. I am interested in the idea of like a large government pot of money that, you know, you could essentially say, whoever, you know, does this first, proves it works, we are going to give you this pot of money. The United States owns the patent, and then we're going to be able to distribute the drug and make it accessible to people. That's one idea for me that I think is, um, it's something I think Bernie Sanders actually had a bill on a few years ago. I know it's an idea, Ezra and I have talked about the idea, and I know it's one he's high on as well, where it seems like a good middle ground of allowing access to healthcare and um, and still encouraging some pretty innovation, pretty innovative drugs, and also targeting that innovation. I think one of the things, like I mentioned with the chemotherapy, there's a lot of money in that right now. So drug companies chase after those sort of things. The government could kind of... Um, target the innovation a little bit better by setting specific economic incentives. Uh, another, another idea in that space is I, that I think we should look at would be mutual recognition between the FDA and the European drug regulator to say that, you know, we have enough confidence in each other's systems that, you know, drugs that, that the Europeans consider to have gone through trials you can sell in the U.S. And, and vice versa. That would both let some new things come onto the market here and new things there. And it would let the staff at both agencies, you know, do less duplicative work and hopefully, you know, get new things tested, kick the tires on them more rapidly. I think that's a kind of a no-brainer. It's it's tied up in a much bigger trade negotiation with a lot of other contentious things about bank regulation and American movies in France and stuff like that. So the, the prospects for it aren't great. I think if you could actually pull that out of the like big TTIP negotiating concept, you could do something that um, would be a pretty clear win for everyone. Great. Thanks, guys. I'm Courtney. I'm a third year med student. So I guess my um, question is about like physician compensation sort Mm -hmm. of. So a lot of times we're talking about the expansion of coverage and like how much physicians get paid. But Mm -hmm. I'm on like the other side of that where like I just see my student loans. And so like (laughs) when I hear universal healthcare, I think, oh, that's wonderful. But like if my loans stay the same and I'm making less. It's just, it looks like a bleak picture. So I'm wondering if that's part of the conversation as well, like student loan reform for medical students. Yeah, I think that's one of, you know, I wrote a piece of Vox recently that I think one of the like really key questions you need to answer in structuring a single payer system is how much, what the prices are, you know, how much we are going to pay someone like you, how much we are going to pay for different procedures. 
And it requires, you know, doctors in a lot, in most other countries make a lot more money than they do here. They also have a lot less le- money. Le- oh, sorry, less money. Sorry about that. Um, crucial difference. Yeah, crucial difference. Um, they make. <laughs> Um, so doctors here earn a lot more money, but like you're, you're saying, they also have a much more expensive education. And that's one of those, I think, transitional issues we don't talk a lot about, but that any sort of um, single-payer system would have to grapple with is that there's a lot of people who went into medical training expecting, you know, I'm going to be able to pay off my loans because my salary is going to look something like X. And I think any sort of single-payer system, if a single-payer system is going to work in the United States, my view is the prices are going to have to be cut significantly. And that's a challenge because, you know, about half of our healthcare spending goes towards workforce. It goes towards doctors, nurses, physician assistants, um, medical, you know, bills-type people. And I think that is one of the things that makes, that, that I think is challenging that not a lot of plans deal with. I think there's more thinking about the price of like an MRI or whatever, but when half of the spending in our healthcare system is workforce, um, I don't have a good answer, but I think it is like a key transitional issue, um, especially for people who have made very, very long-term decisions about their careers. Um, but I don't think single payer is going to pass very soon. So I think you're, I think you're fine for, for now. So don't panic and still keep going to school. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amelia. Um, so my question is, um, I'm, I'm kind of one of those people, I think there's a few of us who were sort of interested in policy, and then after the election, we're like, oh, this is really important. Um, and I just feel like there's so much information out there and kind of the vernacular and everything. I'm wondering if you have any advice besides listening to your podcast to become better acclimated, like for someone who wants to be more of a policy nerd, but just feels overwhelmed. Oh, by. You, you should read Vox.com, uh, <laughs> like, like our Facebook page. Watch our uh, YouTube videos. Check, check out the Worldly podcast. I think Dara's <laughs> like, that's joking, but like, but it, it, Dara has the weeds is on a fairly high difficulty level. Um, this is where, like, I definitely am more willing to indulge in jargon when I'm here than when I'm writing about the exact same topics for the website. Um, All of us are working at Vox because we care a lot about breaking down stuff that is often confined to a very informed but small community and making sure that there is a good on-ramp for people who, like, know that something is happening but aren't from a traditional news story getting the sense of what it actually means. Um, So I definitely, you know, I I think that if we're doing our jobs right, um, everything Vox does to a certain extent should be helping with that, but I do think the website is is on is kind of written on that on ramp level. But something that, that I think is useful and, and old fashioned, but that people should consider is like look up your local political party, or if you're here in New York City, th- there's these like clubs that are affiliated with the parties and do things and like show up to a meeting in person and see some other human beings and see what people who have been working in political sphere, you know, a little bit longer than you, see what they're talking about, see what they're working on and and learn from them. Uh, There's a sort of unparalleled ability to like learn by doing and politics in America is very confusing in some ways and very opaque, but it's also very open to people who like want to show up and, and get involved with things. I like books. Um, so when I like want to learn, so, you know, I think it's been interesting for me too, because I come from a health policy background. I've been hosting the weeds for about two years where we talk about all sorts of policy. And, you know, I, I've been trying to become more of a generalist to, 
you know, participate in the weeds, be able to write on other things. And when I'm interested in like an issue, I kind of like ask, I, I have the luxury of working with a lot of people who cover different things. So I ask them like, what's the best book on this topic? And I found that as a kind of nice way to get caught up. So I was really, I was, I wanted to learn more about housing policy just because it's something I was interested in. So I read, um, I think it's the author, it's Matthew, the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond, which gave me a really nice overview. And, um, I'm reading right now The Color of the Law, which is looking at like the history of segregation and housing policy. So I'm a big fan of books. It's like a nice like kind of entryway into like a new policy area that that I'm not as familiar with. Thank you. That's helpful. Hi, my name is Tao. Um, I'm an immigrant. My my parents and I came to this country and we were able to get permanent resident status pretty quickly because we had already family in the United States when we came here. But my parents were also college educated and pretty skilled. And kind of over the years as, as I was growing up, I witnessed kind of my parents kind of survive round after round of layoffs at their particular companies. So my question is, one of the arguments from the right is that like these immigrants are taking jobs from Americans um, and my parents being very skilled, I could actually really say that they did take a job from an American-born person because they were kept on while an American-born colleague was fired. So wouldn't a policy that um, favors like more merit, more skilled, more college-educated immigrants actually exasperate a possibly imagined problem on the right? So the flip side of this is that you know, a company that is successfully innovating is going to be able to create jobs. So it's, you know, the kind of high-skilled, especially, like, particularly entrepreneurial immigrants, and one of the kind of things that we didn't talk about is when you have people who are coming to the U.S. or coming to a country and don't have a job offer, they can start their own country, or start their own company. (laughs) Whoa, that man. (laughs) Canada's not that flexible. (laughs) But, um, you know... The downstream effects of immigrant, especially skilled immigrants on the American workforce kind of would mitigate that hypothetically. But I think that that's kind of an interesting, there definitely would be individuals who would be laid off. And I think that that's often why uh, politicians on the right who otherwise don't evince a lot of interest in improving the American education system suddenly get very interested in why we aren't training our own people better for STEM. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a real tension there. I mean, there's a sort of, you can, you can draw out an economic model and there's some evidence for it that says, well, more skilled workers have a bigger sort of secondary economic benefit than anybody else. They're higher productivity. There's more uh, skill specialization at higher levels. I do think that there's another level on which the sort of traditional American image of immigration as the immigrants coming in, usually unskilled, usually taking low-status jobs, but still feeling okay about themselves because it's upward mobility relative to where they are from and then their children going to school. And that's sort of, that's the American dream. And that shifting to a system in which more of the farm board population is sort of coming in at the high levels of the job market might increase the the sense. It's uh, Arlie Hochschild's book is called Strangers in Their Own Land or something like that. The the sense among certain people that, that that's what's happening to them, that they're being displaced from America could be heightened by having more kind of high-end immigration rather than than low-end. I think at the end of the day that these kind of like cultural panic stuff has not that much to do with the visa mechanics and that it is probably worth looking at like the technical studies and seeing what, what the real impacts are and addressing cultural things on the cultural level. But 
Yeah, I mean, I also think it's true that uh, while they, they're taking our jobs uh, is a political talking point, it's not actually what motivates anti-immigrant anxiety to the same extent that just basic cultural threat and security threat does. Um, so I'm not sure that exacerbating that problem, and even even if you know it makes it real and sub- substantial, would create the political effects that you would expect. I think we have time for one more question, so no pressure. Um, <laughs> but we're going to hang out a little bit over here to our left, so we'll be around for a little but bit. But make it a good question. But make it, but no pressure. Just just make it pretty good because everyone's you know. I'm James. Um, I'm an urban planner, and uh, you've done a couple. You did like an episode a while back on land taxes, and uh, it's it's definitely a difficult like topic area for a national policymaking conversation. But I think uh, I was going to ask if you hope to do more on in that area in the future, and uh, if you were looking for a suggestion, urban growth boundaries is an interesting idea for a, a topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love urban planning. Uh, you know, I'm more of a more of an infill guy than a than a growth boundaries guy. Um, but you know, I mean, it is an interesting question. I mean, particularly, I think if you look at the more lightly zoned uh, Sunbelt type cities, which, you know, have, I think, a great deal of success in housing production, but might benefit from some kind of sprawl reduction strategies. Uh, you know, it's also interesting just in the details to think about the sort of microdynamics of things. I I happen to notice uh, across the street from the convention center, uh, the, the huge Hudson Yards project here, uh, which I had not known that much about, but, but I was reading about, and, you know, the decision was made to make that a largely and office sort of sort of thing, even though the demand for offices this far west is really pretty low and the demand for housing, you know, could be quite high. And you didn't have any of the sort of traditional, you know, redlining, segregation, even snob zoning kind of barriers to that kind of thing. But it was, they wanted to get maximum tax increment financing for the subway extension. Local city council people just don't love the idea of a whole bunch of new voters, sort of who they don't, who aren't historically their constituents coming in. So this kind of inclination to expand the Midtown Office District West in a city that, you know, everybody knows has a kind of housing crisis, but was produced by I think fairly strange and esoteric motives, uh, but there's like a, a lot of a lot of weirdness going into these planning decisions that would benefit, I think, in a heavy way from getting more attention, not just on the national agenda, but even on the local agenda, to try to really think, like, what are we trying to do here, right? Is anyone's big critique of Manhattan that there's no office buildings anywhere? <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't think that makes a ton of sense. And yet here we have these gigantic cranes building them um, for really, like, just kind of bad reasons. All right. Well, I think that is our show. Thank you to my co-host, Matt, Dara. Thank you, guys. Thanks to the Now Here This Festival. Yes. All right. All right. That is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to the crowd at Now Hear This for um, voting for my white paper. I'm still kind of lording that over my Weeds co-hosts. This episode was produced uh, by Peter Leonard. It was taped at the Now Hear This Festival in New York City. And we will see you next week. Hey, Weeds listeners. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode. We wanted to take this moment to insert a shameless, well, actually very proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. 
Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at The Weeds and at Vox.com, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care the most about. For us, that is obviously policy, maybe health policy. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells you the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy and what to obsess about in the tech world, or Eater, which is basically my go-to website whenever I'm traveling to a new city and need to find out what restaurants to eat at. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of going deeper and because we believe in the best of our audiences. Because if you aren't going deep, where are you going? 